Some of you feel that, right? <laughs> Far more uh, to do in a day than you have hours to do it. Uh, we all have the same amount of time and there's a lot to get done. And we live in a culture, I don't know about you, those of you who have been with us the last couple of weeks, I have really enjoyed this series. I know I'm the one communicating it, but boy, it has been challenging to me because my soul gets weary and tattered. Uh, we live in a fast-paced culture, a culture where the bills need to be paid, the, um, the relationships in our life need attention, the jobs that we do require a lot of us, our children, are, and on and on it goes. And there's so much pushing in, and our challenge is just let's slow down. And let's make sure our souls are strong and we're leading from a place of strength. Week one, if you're with us week one, we talked about our busy problem is a soul problem, not a calendar problem. And that was on Easter morning. We said, Jesus has come to offer rest for your soul. This isn't just a series where we're saying, let's get physical rest and physically strong. This is a series where we're saying so much of our running crazy is because we're living not from a place of inner strength, but a place from inner weakness. So just let's deal with how is it with your soul. And Jesus offers an unbelievable uh, solution to that. Week two, then we talked about that often that busyness, our calendar is rooted in us. What taking care of making sure I'm okay, meaning I want you to think I'm okay. And therefore we flesh out and people pleasing. It's so much of what I do. I thought about this this week. So much of what I do is trying to meet someone else's expectation without ever stopping asking, is that what God's expectation is of me. So we talked last week about let's not be people pleasers, but let's be God pleasers. Let's fear God, not fear people. Now, here's where we're going this morning. If you look at it, you see in the title, a child centric. We're going to talk about parenting. Here's what we're going to talk about parenting. When we think about being busy, something challenged me uh, about a year and a half ago. I was at a conference and as I was leaving the conference, they were giving out free books. It was a book by a guy by the name of Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in East Lansing, Michigan, home of the Spartans. Some of you are Michigan State fans, maybe. Uh, he's pastors there in that college campus, a very thriving, vibrant, a gospel, Jesus-centered church. He wrote, a, it's a short book. Matter of fact, the subtitle is A Mercifully Short Book on a Really Big Problem. The title of the book is Crazy Busy. So I picked this book up. Now, I've read a lot on this subject of being busy. I've read Margins. That's the classic one from years ago. You know, and some of the newer ones, Bill Hybels has one out, Simplified. You might have seen that and so many others. And I've never seen what Kevin DeYoung did in this book. He devoted, and it was a short book, he devoted a whole chapter to parenting. Oh, that's interesting. So as I read the book and worked through his material, it just absolutely opened my eyes to the reality of what I think I already knew, that parenting and how we parent drives so much of our crazy schedules. So he felt it important to talk about it. Now, I throw that out to say I was challenged by that. We added it to our series because we're a church. It's about family and home. And we said, hey, let's do that. I also share it to say I'm going to follow some of Kevin's thoughts. So if you pick the chapter up, some of the things I say this morning are going to sound. And I'm going to try and give him credit where I quote him directly. Um, but again, made it my own, but just want to give him credit for that. thing I want to say before we jump into, some of you have already checked out. You know why you've checked out? Because you're saying, I don't have kids at home, Adam. <laughs> you're starting to think about your afternoon, what you want to do in this beautiful day. And here's the deal. Just hang with me in this. Yes, this message is going to hit hardest and heaviest and encourage the most. Those of you who are saying, I've got children at home. Clearly, you're going to walk out of here, hopefully, challenged and encouraged. For those of you that do not have children at home, here's what I want to say to you. All of you have a parent or had a parent. And what I find in today's culture, our psychologized, introspective culture, I'm not 
giving my opinion on that, but just what our culture is. So often I hear people blame mom or dad for their problems. What we're going to talk about in this message is going to rub up against that. And it's going to challenge you to say, no, your problems are your problems. Parents aren't, don't, no matter, you got the greatest parent in the world, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a successful adult. You have the worst parent in the world, it doesn't mean you're going to be a loser in life. So we're going to talk about that. So I want to challenge you to just step back and look at life from what have you been your assumptions on the role that parents play in your life today? Next group I want to talk to is those of you who might have adult children who are now having children or getting ready to have children or will have children one day. Your grandkids need you. And the passage we're going to look at addresses grandparents. And I think grandparents play a vital role in the health of children today, a huge role. I'd also say that your kids today raising their kids are raising their kids in a world that you did not live in. Culture changes, life changes. So I want to just challenge you. We're going to talk about some things here this morning that we live in a culture that really gets wild and crazy with parenting. So I think it'd be good for those of you to say, okay, what are kind of world are my kids living in? And how can I be an encouragement then to my, my grown children as they raise my grandchildren? So with that said, all that to say, I think it's hopefully we can be all encouraged this morning, but turn with me to Deuteronomy uh, chapter six, Deuteronomy chapter six. And if you're new to the Bible, Welcome. Maybe you don't have a Bible. Uh, That's cool. Glad you're here. So glad you're here. This is a place, hopefully it's safe for you to walk in, push in, wrestle, but we read from the Bible. We believe it's the word of God and we believe it's the authority on how to do life. Um, Deuteronomy 6 is where you'll find there, page 155, those pew Bibles in front of you if you're using one of them. If you don't have a Bible and you're using that Bible, take that Bible home with you. Consider it a gift from us to you and we'll just ask that you engage it and uh, start reading it. Deuteronomy chapter six, let's start at verse one. Now here's the context. What is happening here in this section? Just some of you, some of you know this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. What is happening here in this section is there's a group of people called the Jews, the Israelites. Um, They're referred to in the places of scriptures kind of as God's chosen. You'll hear that term used, the apple of his eyes, another term is used for him. God called a man out named Abraham. He said, listen, I want you to establish a nation And what that nation is going to be and going to do is that nation is going to grow strong and healthy, and it's going to represent me, God says, to the entire world. So that was the purpose of the nation of Israel. That's why he just says, I'm going to call this group. Now, this group has been in slavery for 400 years, right? Where's the context where this passage is showing up? They've been dreaming of having their own land that God promised them one day. They've been dreaming of being the nation that God foretold to this guy named Abraham years ago. They cannot wait for this. Now, here they are. They've kind of pushed out from that slavery place, and they're getting ready to establish their own land. And God's going to speak to them and give them a foundational, okay, this is how, this is the bedrock of your nation. Kind of like, not totally, but similar to here in America, we have the Declaration of Independence and then our U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights. Similar stuff, saying this is how America is going to be run. This is the bedrock of this country, and don't steer from it as you build this nation strong. That's kind of in a similar parallel, if you want to look at it that way, what God is doing here. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6. This is kind of the foundation of this brand new nation that God's about to kind of birth. These are the commandments, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. 
And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. I want to pause right here. It's interesting to me. I just want to make, I'm not going to go off on a tangent on this, but I do want to make the observation. So often, please do not buy into our culture that what happens at home doesn't impact our nation. The marriage debate that's happening in the public circles, in, in our, in our um, down in D.C. and in the, all those places, the family is crucial to the health of the nation. So important. God says, listen, he isn't talking to governors and kings and pharaohs. He says, I want to talk to parents. What happens at home, how you raise your kids, uh, the, the core bedrock of that family is so important to the healthy, a healthy nation. Uh, but again, enough said on that. I don't want to get off on that tangent. Now, continue reading. Pick up there in the middle of verse 2. If you obey all his decrees and commandments, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is alone, or the Lord is one. Some of you have. He is one God. Verse 5, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Pause right there. That is the most important commandment, and God says this is it. This is bedrock. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 6, in other words, love, love God with all of yourself all of the time. Verse 6, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. So in other words, don't just waffle and uh, maybe or all some days or give it your all, all of you, all of the time. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, verse 7 is going to get to some detail. So you love God with all your heart. Now, here's what you do with that love. Verse 7, repeat them, referring to the commandments, repeat them again and again to your children. When's the last time you talked to your kids about God and what he expects of them? Talk about them when you're at home and when you're in the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. In other words, all the time. There should be, a, there should be kind of a culture in your home of you talk about who God is to you, faith and who Jesus is and a love for him. Now, verse 8, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as a reminder. That's kind of weird, you know. See, we don't do that today, but that's God saying keep them in front of you. Always as put something out there as a reminder. Some of you hang things on walls. Hang a verse there that reminds you this is who God is. This is what he wants of you. Write them on the doorpost of your home. So as you're leaving and going and coming, you're reminded this is what's expected of us. Love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I look at this passage here, and this is kind of bedrock um, to the establishment of a nation. It's bedrock to the home, the family. When we start talking about family, this is kind of one of the core central teachings, I think, in all of Scripture. And here's what I want you to grasp in verse 7. When you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, guess what you naturally do? You talk about him. Do you know what's true of every one of you in this room, whether you believe it or not? You talk about the things that you love. Facebook, when you have a good meal or you sit down, I mean, I can't stand. If you do this, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to offend you. But when you take pictures of your meal and your whatever, your T-bone steak that's laying there, and I mean, I just, why do, you, why do we do But it's because you love it. I was at Penn State yesterday, and I took pictures, and I was giddy as a, I mean, I was so excited here. Beautiful day up with my kids. I'm taking pictures and putting it on Facebook. Why am I doing that? 
because I love my kids. I love that I'm experiencing this. I'm having this time with them. We talk about what we love and what we value. What comes out of your mouth is coming from something inside of you. So what is the temperament, temperature of your home? What do you talk about? Do you talk about your love for God, your love for Jesus, who God is? I mean, I would say it this way. More is caught than taught. You've heard that statement. And it's far more important, far more important to pay attention to who you are, not what you're doing. Who do you love? What do you love? Do you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you? Is that who you are? And if it's who you are, it's going to naturally come out in your home. It's going to naturally be a part of what you talk about and what you do with your children. They're in the house, in the home. You know, I would say this. uh, There's many pastors and thinkers today who bemoan the fact that young people today are just leaving the churches in droves. Statistically, it is so true and it breaks my heart. But I really, I'm tired. I'm very tired of people pointing fingers at the church. Do you know where it starts? Not in the church. It starts in the home. When the home is not a safe place for a child or a teenager to wrestle with who God is, to talk about faith and things of faith, to engage with mom and dad and and to see mom and dad praying and, and to see mom and dad praying for people that don't know Jesus and to see mom and dad wrestling with different, just talking. It's a natural part of the home. That's where children today they're not a part of that. They, what, what do I need this? When I get off to college, what good is this? It's got to come from the home. That's why I love our children's ministry here. They, they don't see themselves. They see themselves as building relationships that support the home. They don't see themselves as replacing them. They do a phenomenal job down there of saying, listen, we're here to walk with your children as you walk with your children. Uh, very, very important. Now, a couple of specifics of this passage. I mean, it's at home. Every, all your talk at home should be through the lens of love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. On the road, as you're going, as you're moving about, I mean, just be talking. Oh, wow, look at the cows. And wow, God created the cows. And talk about God. Oh, wow, look at the beautiful sky. Or, or well, you know, today, daddy's really struggling. And, and talk about it through the lens of faith and God. Or specifically, I love some of the details of this. At bedtime. When you're laying them down, that's something I remember so vividly from my parents. I remember them every night when I laid them down, they told me they loved me, pointed me to who God was at some capacity. Pray with your kids before they go to bed at a minimum. Then it says, as you start your day, you know, I'd throw this out just for what it's worth, just an idea. Maybe kick it around with your family. You know, it's hard to get a meal today as a family. You got an amen on that? Somebody going, yeah, that's darn right that is. Try breakfast. Even if you've got to get up at 5.30, force you to go to bed earlier. That's <laughs> not all that bad. But breakfast could be a meal. As you start your day, have a half hour with your family gathered around. Uh, even if it's just Pop-Tarts and milk. I mean, just enjoy your family. Start your day together talking about God and moving into your day. Now, here's the deal. Here's where we're going to go this morning. really want to push in on this. There are not a lot of specific instructions to parents in the Bible. This is one of the few. I challenge any of you who are passionate about parenting and all the different schools of thought on how to parent and how to raise kids. I challenge you to come to me with verses that really endorse your schools of thought. There's very, very few of them. Matter of fact, the best of I read scripture, there are really four big principles that I see. First one is this passage. Parents, teach your kids about God. Period. Teach them about faith. 
Second one, discipline your children. Hebrews chapter 12, um, Proverbs chapter 23, many other passages that, that, that kind of capture this parent, discipline your children. I mean, it's a loving thing to do. Hebrews 12 is kind of the capstone of that one. The other one I see, be thankful for your kids. Psalm 127, your kids are a gift. View your kids through that lens. And the final one, and the only one I really know of, of any kind of detail, is Ephesians 6, chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 4, which specifically talks to dads. And it says, do not exasperate your children or encourage them towards wrath or anger. Beyond that, it's blank. There's not a lot there. Now, some of us freak out at that. But you know what? That's really quite comforting. God has given you a lot of freedom on how to parent. Yet I find we live with so much pressure and so much stress that gets our calendars spinning out of control with our children. Here's, let me give you one example. This is my story. Uh, I think maybe you relate to this. When I got married, I wasn't sure I wanted to have kids. I'm not a kid's guy. Kids are generally afraid of me and I'm afraid of them. They, they like see the fear and they're like, whoa, stay away from him. Um, I love, I value children. I don't want to say that, but I just, I've never, I always want to, I just want to like, give me a teenager. I know how to work with a teenager. Kids, I just don't know. So we get married, go four years into marriage, school's done. And Tanya's like, okay, let's get on this family thing. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. I I have no more excuses now. School's over. All that's behind us. We're moving forward. Um, So we get on the family thing. Um, She gets pregnant and you'd think, you'd think, you know, nine months of watching her stomach grow and, and watching her get, you know, everything set up. You'd think it would have set in. We are going to have a baby. It just didn't set in. I mean, I am just living in denial for nine months. It gets to the point where she comes to us. We go away for the weekend for a job interview at, at, at a, uh, about two hours from here. Uh, we come back from that weekend and we spend the day out together like Barnes and Noble, went to AC Moore. I don't remember what she was buying, but I think it was something maybe for, I don't know what it was, crafty something. And uh, we get, and little do I know, but she's experiencing labor kind of throughout the day. She's not sharing this with me. We get home at the end of the day and it's dark now and it's late. I'm getting ready for bed and, you know, I'm still living in denial. And she comes to me and she says, oh, sweetie, I think it's time. I'm like, yeah, time for what? And I mean, I'm thinking... <laughs> Time for bed? Yeah, let's go. I mean, that's time for bed. So she says, no, I'm in labor. We need to go to the hospital. Oh, this came out of my mouth. No lie. No, no, no. And I put my hands on my head and I'd like, I thought I was going to pass out. I sat down in the bed. I'm like, no, sweetie, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. No. (laughs) True story. True story. We laugh at it. Uh, But I've reflected on that. Now we get to the hospital and I slowly got into the role and I slowly let reality set in. And I'm like, okay, we can do this. But here's what I've reflected on. Do you know why I was pushing that off? I didn't have a job yet. And I knew I just lived with this fear that it's up to me. I have to do it. I have to provide. I have to protect. I have to make sure this kid doesn't end up in jail. I mean, this is my job. You know, and I, and I live with this pressure. I, here's what the thinking I lived with. I lived thinking that parenting creates the child. Let me say that again, because I think a lot of us slip into this. I lived with the pressure that parenting creates the child. And when you live with that pressure, now parenting's important. Now don't hear me dissing parenting. Parenting's very important. But when you live with that pressure, deep inside then who my child becomes says more about me than it does my child. 
So when I'm walking through the grocery store and he starts crying, I'm not worried about what can I do to help my now toddler who's throwing a fit in the grave. I'm thinking, what's everyone thinking about me? Or when my rebellious teenager now goes through his normal rebellious stage, I'm thinking, oh my word, the whole church thinks I'm a loser dad. And no, I had all this pressure on me. And I want to challenge that this morning. Your parenting does not make or break your child. Now, some of you, that strikes great fear in your heart. Others of you, you're like, yes. Now, today, more than ever, we live with child-centric homes, more than ever. What I mean by that is everything in our families in the West tend to center around child. What's best for child? What does child need? What is child? And we schedule everything around child. Child center comes and we're living as though their happiness and their success trumps everything else. And we're trying to give them all that, all that we didn't have. And it just, it's, it's not helping children. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. We think of our children as amazingly fragile and entirely moldable. He goes on to say, both assumptions are mistaken. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, here's what I'd say. Walk away with this. It's harder to ruin your kids than we think, and it's harder to stamp them for success than we'd like. Let that sink in. It's kind of a cutesy way to say it, but let it sink in. It's harder to ruin your kids than we think, and it's harder to stamp them for success than we'd like. Deuteronomy 6. Love, Lord God, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Take care of your soul. Love God. Love him. And let's talk about him. Talk when you go to bed, when you get up, as you're gone. It's much harder to ruin your kids than you think, and it's much harder to stamp them for success than we like. Kevin DeYoung references a guy by the name of Brian Kaplan who's done kind of, he's in a long list of scientists who study identical twins. I'm going to play a clip from another child psychologist who is referencing his work. It's not the greatest quality, but I think it'll help you kind of grasp what he's saying. But identical twin studies, here's why this is important. This gets into the nature-nurture debate. Some of you kind of know where this is going, and you're kind of trying to feel this one out. Identical twins is when the egg is fertilized, and somehow scientists don't know why this happens, but it splits into two. So now you've got two children. This is the identical twin scenario, two children from the exact same sperm, the exact same egg. So what ends up happening now is these two children have the exact same genetic code in essence. So they come out of mom, I mean, basically identical. Now, what ends up happening at times throughout, you know, an identical twin will get separated at birth. So you may have one adopted into this family, one adopted in this family. In the 60s and 70s, there was actually, I was blown away at this. I didn't know this. I discovered this this week. In the 60s and 70s, there was this kind of prevalent thinking that it's not good to raise identical twins in the same home. So many families were encouraged to give one up for adoption. So an identical twin might be raised on the West Coast and the other on the East Coast. This in a real structured traditional family, this more in a loose and liberal family. And so what scientists and social scientists have been interested in is studying these identical twins now who've been raised in different environments years later, now they're in their adult years, and asking, who are they? Because it gives us a great indication of how important a child's environment is to them becoming who they are. Okay, so go ahead and listen to this child psychologist. I'm going to make some comments on it. Well, what we're learning more and more from twin studies as time has gone on, because we've had time to measure them, is that an amazing amount of behavior, even personality, is determined by your genetics. So they'll have two children who were reared, uh, you know, states and states apart, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. They were both uh, perhaps given up for adoption. 
and they will then um, locate these people and then see what they're, how they made out in life. And it's amazing how similar they've chosen similar professions. They've often um, married similar spouses. Um, they had one instance was one, one person was an EMT. His twin was a firefighter. Um, so they obviously were attracted to helping people. Um, so we're finding that even aspects of personality, not just physical characteristics, are influenced by your genetics. So in other words, there is some influence by parenting skills in a child down the road, but there are some things, no matter what you do, that could end up that way? Yes, and being a child psychologist, too many parents come into me and they, perhaps through the media, through what used to be known 40 and 50 years ago, believe that any issue their child has somehow relates back to them and their poor handling of it. And I try to reassure them all the time that a lot of these things are genetic and congenital and that how they handle the child does not determine how the child does. So you could say it's... Many times a kid that turn out bad, you could probably say many times it's not your fault. That's true. So you hear what he's saying? In other words, it's harder to ruin our kids than we think and harder to stamp them for success than we'd like. You know, as you look at these studies, there are three areas, three areas that are consistently show up as the parents heavily influence. Okay, they look at these twin studies and success and grades and health and personality and sociological behaviors and all that just pretty much goes straight down the line. It's crazy. The three areas, this comes back to Deuteronomy chapter six. When I read this, I'm like, man, there it is. God knew what he was talking about. What do you know? The three areas, one is politics, which we won't get into. Uh, how you were raised, no matter what your genetic, genetic makeup is, politics kind of is formed by your, very much by your parents. Um, the second one is called appreciation. So that's how you think of your childhood. So when you think back, do you have fond memories? And how do you remember your childhood? That's going to be very much influenced by how you raise your child. The final one is, guess what? Religion. Radically influenced by mom and dad. Mom or dad or the home environment. So who is God? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him. And talk about it. Natural to talk about because you love them. Now, other studies have kind of run in the vein of this. There's a lady by the name of Ellen Galinsky who studied thousands of kids between third and twelfth grade. And she one of the questions she went out and asked to kind of kind of probe into some of this is what one thing would you change about how your parents work impacts you or affects you? Let's get the question. So if you could change one thing about how your parents' job impacts you, what would it be? They had some choices to choose. You know what they did not choose? They did not say work less hours. Listen to this. Here's what they said. They want mom and dad to be less stressed and tired. Listen to that mom and dad. They want you there. They want a relationship with you. They don't want you to come home all worn out and worried about all the other cares of life. Now, these kids went on and in this study, they went on and they gave parents an overall grade. And overall here in America, they gave parents a B, a solid B. So if you're, you're a parent here, if you're in the norm, you got a B. Now, here's this one. Here's, this one was an indication of child-centric. They gave them an A in making children feel important. In other words, measured by do my parents attend my events and my activities, etc. A full-blown A with the highest score on the entire test. Because we as parents today, I mean, I think it's a cardinal sin if we miss a child's game. Now, the biggest weakness, you know what it was? Biggest thing that showed up in this test. 
anger management. 40% of kids gave their parents a less than passing grade. Controlling their temper, it was a high concern to children. Again, comes back to the Bible. One of the specifics God speaks to, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Do not exasperate your kids to anger. Now, Kevin DeYoung was going to talk about this. So again, we can't influence what we think we can, but the areas where we can, I don't think we always have it so hot. Our children are stressed with, our children are struggling with secondhand stress. By trying to do so much for them, we are actually making our kids less happy. Some of you know Mark Gregston. Mark Gregston is another parenting kind of guru. Mark Gregston, parenting today's teen. He's on the radio in our area. Um, parenting, he's going to actually be here in this room on October 14th. I cannot wait. Some of you want to mark that in your calendars now. If you've got kids approaching those adolescent years or kids in those adolescent years, you want to be here. I'm just thrilled about that. Here's what Mark says. Mark says, parents don't have to constantly entertain or pacify their kids. Instead, fill their foundational desire by offering wisdom and creating relationship. He goes on to say, and he describes so much of our parenting. He says, parents today are so busy trying to make sure their kids are completing their homework, getting their stuff done on time, making sure their grades are good, making sure their room is clean, making sure they're in the the music lesson and doing the lessons and making sure they're not looking at porn or not drinking alcohol or not having sex or that they're at home by 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock or make sure their chores are done that they're getting along with their siblings or that they have the opportunities and the trips that they themselves didn't have and that they're getting a job and that on and on and on it goes. And Mark Gregson says, listen, you know what it boils down to parents? Deuteronomy six, love Jesus, have a relationship with your kids. Now we make this thing so darn complicated. Matter of fact, he gives this incredible quote, a little wordy in the way he says it, but with the heart of it is so good. Gregson goes on to say, you might be doing all the right things as a parent. All those things I listed are good things might be doing all the right things as a parent and not being what your child needs you to be for them. Love God, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others. It's harder to ruin our kids than we think and harder to stamp them for success than we'd like. You know, I would just challenge parents, especially as you have young kids, start to establish some boundaries on this one. Plan fewer outings. Involve your kids in less activities. Just let me give you, here's, this is, don't hear me saying you need to go do this. This is not, I don't like to preach that stuff. <laughs> I just want to share Tanya's and my general policy on this one. Because this is how we've applied this. And again, we've experimented a lot. But right now we have four children. Oldest is 12, youngest is five. Right now we are saying to them one sport a year, period, end of story. Now, when I say that to parents in our culture, they look at me like the dentist. Says, what? You on crack? I mean, that's good for kids to be out there and do. I say, yeah, but how many kids do you have? One. I said, I got four. And I don't have a child-centric. I don't want to. I do at times have a child-centric home. I don't want to have a child-centric home. And you know what? The reality is he's not going to play Major League Baseball or in the NFL. Don't tell them that. They think they are. (laughs) Don't go. Don't you know my kids? Hey, your dad said, okay, I'll keep fanning the flame, but you know. So again, one activity. We don't need to just load their schedules up. It's not good for them anyway. You know, take a break from your kids. Get a babysitter. Go out as a couple. 
Or if you're a single parent, go out by yourself, get a babysitter, get someone you trust into your home to care for your kids. Do it more often. You know what other thing I'd say? Get your kids involved in the housework. Get them doing their laundry. Get them cleaning the toilet. Get them cleaning them. They may have a throw fit about that, but involve them. Roll the sleeves up. Get them involved. It's not just this parents here to serve child. I mean, it's, it's just not a healthy way to go, and it's really killing our children and your schedules. Now, when I say it's harder to ruin our kids than we think and harder to stand them for success than we like, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, please hear this, that genes explain away everything that's happening in your life. Okay, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm not saying that your genes and your genetic code is all that's happening with your behavior. You are created in God's image. You are created as a responsible moral agent. Your DNA does not determine your eternal destiny. But then again, here's what I am saying. Then again, neither does your parenting determine the child's eternal destiny. Your parenting is not making the big impact that some of us, and we put all this pressure on and go to all these classes and adopt all these new methods. And I'm just here to say, listen, relax, breathe, slow down, love Jesus, Build a relationship with your kids. I don't know how more simply to say it. Try some of those other things. Go to classes. Absolutely. But your kids are going to be who your kids are going to be, whether you want them to be that or not. That's how I want to end with this story to illustrate that. I want to illustrate. I asked Tanya permission. Tanya's my wife. Ask her permission to share this. When you look at our teenage years, Tanya's and mine, you would think that I came from a difficult home and she came from this amazing home. But something very, it's actually quite the opposite. Tanya, growing up, faced repeated and significant abuse, physical, emotional, and mental. Significant is what I would stress there. Her parents separated at age 15. Her dad left home, and they got a divorce at age 19. Now, my home, I remember one time as I've turn my mind inside out. I remember one time hearing my parents fight. And I remember even going to bed that night thinking, oh my word, my parents are going to separate. They hate each other. They hate me. I've made life so terrible. One fight. I didn't know what, I didn't know what turmoil was in the home. I created a lot of it, but I didn't know what it was. (laughs) Now I knew that I was loved every night. Just about every night. My memory, my memory, my counselor tells me never to say every, but I think it was every night. My dad would kiss me on the forehead. As I got older, that stopped. But he'd always let me know, Adam, I love you. I heard it from my dad all, to this day, often when I hang the phone up with my dad, you know what he says to me? I love you. To this day, I had a good home. Not perfect. Don't hear me saying that. Not perfect, but a good home. I didn't know what divorce was until a close friend, when I was 16, a close friend says to me, my parents are getting divorced. I go home to my mom and dad and say, what's divorce? True story. You say, oh my word, were you living under a rock, Adam? I might've been, I don't know, but I just didn't know it. I didn't see it. It wasn't around me. It was not the home that I experienced. And so I walked with my friend at 16 into this, into this awkward world of what is this? And I don't know what it is. Yet, when you look at Tanya's teenage years and my teenage years, I am the one that went off the deep end. I am the one that rebelled. I am the one that pushed in. I am the one that got to the place where I actually attempted suicide because life was that bad that I've made such a mess of it. Now, Here's what I want to say. As you get to know Tanya and I, and I'll share a little bit of it if you don't know me, you'll kind of get a feel for this. 
my personality pushes in naturally. If you say we're going that way, I say, well, no, wait a minute. How about that way? That's just who I am. I love to initiate change. I just, I hate change, but I love to initiate. I love to push in. I love to, I'm a skeptic by nature. I question stuff. I don't just like to fit in the box and like, oh, no, wait a minute. And and I just, who I am. I'm a leader. Okay. When you get around leaders, they're a different breed. I have goals and missions and agendas and let's go and let's get a rally the troops and, and, or is also known as rebellion as a teenager, still as an adult. That's who I am. So it didn't matter what my parents were going to do. I was going to go this course. I believe my parents or anything could avoid it. They did a good job. Not perfect, but it's who I'm wired to be, to step out and take life on. Tanya, now as much as what I'm going to share, I would, would have loved as I walk with Tanya in adult years, I would love, love, love as her husband to go back and erase so much of what she experienced. It's impacted her to this day. So don't hear me minimizing her home life in any way. But Tanya, from her own words, this is what she gave me permission to share. From her own words, she said that her temperament or her personality sustained her in her home. Yes, the grace of God. Don't hear me ignoring that. But her personality, she had the right temperament to live in the home she lived in and get through somewhat whole. By very nature, Tanya is adaptable. When you get around her, you'll learn this. By very nature, um, she's kind of figured out then how to fly under the radar from that abuse. By very nature, she's not the person when everyone's saying go this way, she says, she doesn't do this. She says, okay, I can kind of, we'll adapt, we'll work with this. Her spiritual gift, she accepted Christ uh, in, in a church. That's why I love the local church. She accepted Christ in Sunday school. And I believe when you accept Christ, you have a spiritual gift. Her spiritual gift leans her towards truth. It enabled her, in my opinion, in her opinion, to keep her centered as she navigated murky waters of abuse and significant dysfunction. It kept her centered, be able to walk. We've joked at times, if you would have dropped me in a home environment like that, oh my goodness, I think someone would be dead today. I don't say that to joke. I mean, I'm just like, wow, what would have happened? But her personality, her temperament, it's not who just, oh, great Tanya. It's, she was wired to live in that home. And I love my wife today. Who she is is a beautiful person. And she came from a terrible home. Now, let me say this. I hope this goes without saying. Hope you don't walk out of here and think, oh, great. I can parent however I want. And it's all going to be hunky-dory. I'm not saying that. This message is not an excuse to hang your hat on for poor parenting or lazy parenting. Work hard as a parent. But understand that it's harder to ruin your kids than you'd like, and it's harder to stamp them for success than you'd hope. just can't happen. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. I love when he says it. (laughs) He says, we will parent imperfectly. Our children will make their own choices, and God will mysteriously and wonderfully use it all to advance his kingdom. Remember, Chris said last week, seek first the kingdom of God. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then let it flow into your children's lives. You know, Alistair Begg, he's a pastor, theologian. He said it this way. He says, when I was young, I had six theories and no kids. Now I have six kids and no theories. Isn't that funny? (laughs) As I thought about that this week, as I read that, I said, you know what? I'm ahead of the curve. When I was young, I had like 12 theories. I mean, I had theories on everything. 
I thought I had everything. I mean, this is how it's going to be. Now I only have four kids. It didn't even take me six. I had four kids. That's why I think we stopped at four. And I'm out of theories. I have no theories left. I'm just like, I don't know what to do anymore. But the longer I parent, and I learned from so many of you that have parented well, the longer I parent, the more I realize how important it is to focus on a few things well and not get so worked up about everything else. You know, those of you in the room that are firstborns, I want to pray for you. You know what happened with you? Same thing that happened to me. You had your mom and dad, man. They thought, here it goes. We can stamp this kid. For, and they tried everything and they pushed in. And, and then you get to that third, fourth, some of you have fifth and sixth kids. It's like, now, oh, wait a minute. I looked at my younger sister who's nine years younger than me. I think if I had done that, I would have been thrown out of the house, let alone. I mean, it's, just, it's kind of funny. We, but again, those of you firstborns, you get this. And I'm my, my poor firstborn. I, but the more I raise my youngest now, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I can smile. I still struggle with time. But I can smile at some of her stuff that the older would not have gotten away with. The longer I parent, the more I realize how important it is to focus on those few things. And you know what? Here's what I want to end. When my kids are my age and they look back and they think about and reflect on the home, here's what I hope they say. I hope they say, you know what? I'm not sure what my parents were doing. I'm not sure if they even knew what they were doing. But I always knew that my parents loved me. And more importantly, they loved Jesus. So I want to end just challenging parents. Spend that time with God. Get into our reading plan. If you don't have one or if you have one, do it and do it with passion. Love, color, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Also want to say this. Those of you who are parenting poorly, can I challenge you? Most humbling things you can do is go to your child and say, sorry, please forgive me. Those of you who have adult children and know that it's kind of done here, I want to speak from an adult child's perspective to some of you who have children my age. You know what means a lot to me? When my parents over the course of time have come back to me as an adult child and looked at me and said, Adam, boy, I wish I knew today what I I knew then what I knew today. I'm sorry for how I've impacted you. Now, I've got to be mature. As I've said at the start of this, I've got to realize that the way my parents raised me, (laughs) I can't put all my problems on them. Boy, it means a lot to have a parent come back and say, man, Adam, I'm sorry the way I did it. I just want you to know I love you. And more than that, I love Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then as you're going and in your home and when you lay them down and when you get up, talk about it. Talk about that love. Talk about Jesus. I want to pray for us. And we're done praying. The, the, again, the band's going to come back on stage and wrap our service up with a song. Uh, the ushers are going to come forward at that time if you're new to the church. And some of them are getting up now to go uh, get ready for this. But the ushers will come forward, and that's when we give of our offerings and worship God through giving. Also, I mentioned the tear-off earlier in the service. This is when you would turn that in. Uh, thank you for doing that. Share your prayer requests. But again, use this time as a time of worship, the time of just saying, God, how is it with my soul? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Got to thank you for the gift of parents. I don't want this message to sound as though parents mean nothing. And we're just going to go as our genetics have wired us to go. Got to thank you for my parents and God, those in this room that have had good parents. God, I, I just pray that they're just thankful and appreciative for those parents. Those that have had poor parents, God, I pray that they would, in spite of their parents, Understand that scripture has called them to honor their parents and God's scripture calls them to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to do that. Every one of us in this room, God, help us to love you 
more than anything else in the world. Help us to constantly search our hearts and make sure that what's beating in our heart is a love for you. And God, boy, it's just natural then to talk about it in our homes. So help us to do that and do that well. God, those in this room that maybe have parented poorly, um, God, give them the courage to go back and apologize. Say, I'm sorry. And just sit with that. Um, God, those that are yet have young kids, God, boy, help them to grab hold of this and start out right. And so they don't need to look back and have some of those hard conversations. But God, I just close by praying. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for the price that you paid sending your son to this earth to die on a cross, to raise again so that we could have life with you. Through him, period. End of story. God, boy, what a, what a love relationship you want with us. And God, as we establish that, I pray that everyone in this room has that relationship. And if not, they'd start it this morning or come back to you. And then God, help us to walk into our week from a place of strength, not a place of weakness. And help us to live with our children and our family in a way that reflects a radical love for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.